0: Hi, my name is Nina Boski, and I'm the host of a special investigation series of Marilyn Behind the Icon during the 60th anniversary of the star's death, where we'll look into the mystery and break down for you, the audience, of what the facts are versus the lies around the star that have been plaguing her for over six decades. We have some of the top Marilyn experts with me on the panel. Gary Vitaka Robles, icon, lifetimes and films of Marilyn Monroe. And April Via Via, now Chambers, Marilyn Monroe, A Day in the Life. And Donald McGovern, Murder Orthodoxies, a non conspiracy view of Marilyn Monroe's death. Each week, we will break down for you what is fact, what is probable theory, and what is outlandish rumor. In this episode, part three out of four shows, they are dedicated to Marilyn's last day and her death. For most of the day, it was quite ordinary. While I want to recommend that you go back and listen to the dramatic series of Marilyn's last day, it will give you an up-close and personal feeling of what it was like the last day prior to the star's death. We're going to use the panel again for the Goodnight Maryland radio breakdown. And then later in the hour, I'm going to have Gary Vitaco robles back with me because we have some updated information. He has a new book coming out all around Maryland's last day, but we're going to pick up with David Marshall who ran an online discussion back in the day, one of the first, and he wrote a book with all of his findings. So let's pick up where David Marshall talks about the documented timeline. David, you wanted to make a comment.
1: Well, I just wanted to add in that there are two times that are documented. And the first one would be at 825. That's when Evans calls is trying to get a hold of uh, Mickey Rudin and gets Rudin's answering service. And that call was logged in at 825. There's another answering service uh, log, and that was at Ralph Roberts' answering service, where they received a call that was 99% positive was from Maryland, and that came in at 8.30. In both of those cases, uh, the time is documented, and from Ralph Roberts' uh, answering service, we know that the caller was severely slurred speech, and that Ralph has come back and said that he knows that that call was from Maryland. As, uh I think he said two other people knew that phone number, uh, and both of them were out of town at the time, uh, or said that they didn't call, so we know that it is Marilyn who's calling.
0: Wow. And Gary?
2: Well, Milton Rudin did reach Eunice Murray at about 9 o'clock, and according to Mrs. Murray, he didn't indicate any high level of concern or distress. He just kind of casually asked about Marilyn's well-being. And um, Mrs. Murray walked not into the hallway where she might have seen the cord under the door or or a light under the door. She walked through the Jack and Jill bathroom into the other room to answer the phone. And um, she says if she had known that there was a a level of concern, um, she would have taken action and made more of an effort to check on Marilyn.
0: All right. This is really bothering me. This is this is a point that is getting under my crawl a little bit with this. If Peter Lawford indeed officially comes on and says, you know what, she's saying goodbye to the president, saying goodbye to him, saying goodbye to everybody, right? And he's in touch with the lawyers. Why in the world would the lawyer just casually be checking in on Marilyn? Mary Jane?
3: Again, I I find this whole story very strange. I mean, we touched on Eunice said if he had, you know, exhibited more concern, I would have, I don't know, actually checked on her. For them to have tracked down Melton Rudin at a dinner party where he's out at a social event, gets a phone call saying you need to call and, and check on Marilyn to say that it was very lackadaisical and, and casual just doesn't seem to ring true to me.
0: No. That and he Leslie had to be do- hunted
3: down and then call her and then it was no urgency and no big deal.
0: It, that just seems very, very odd. Leslie, do you want to add anything before we move on to the next comment? Yeah, I do.
3: First of all, I wanted to point out that we missed, um, we kind of missed over one phone call that did occur in between uh, Joe DiMaggio Jr.'s call and the Lawford call, which is that Marilyn supposedly called Ralph Greenson to tell him about Joe's call, uh, Joe Jr.'s call, and uh, expressed to him how happy she was that the engagement had been broken off and um, that they spoke briefly. He was getting ready to go out to his dinner party, and he... uh, said they would speak in the morning, and obviously at that point in time, which we're guessing is around 745, again, timeline gets a little confused on some of these calls, uh, but he didn't note anything of concern. So we're talking about a very quick downhill here from the time she spoke to Greenson until we've got her on the phone with Lofford.
0: Yeah, so that was a very good point, uh, Leslie. So about 7.45, somewhere between 7.35 and 7.45, she tells and calls Greenson. Is there anybody else on the record that she has talked to during this time that's credible, that we know of?
2: I'm not aware of anyone else. And in that last phone call to Greenson, she does ask him if he had removed the vial of Nembutal, and he tells her that he did not. And she takes the DiMaggio call in another room, and Mrs. Murray wondered if she found uh, the Nebitol vial in that particular bedroom, that it might not have been in her own bedroom where the doctor held a session with her.
0: Anything else anybody wants to add as we get into the 9 o'clock hour?
1: Just a thought on that question to Dr. Greenspan. It makes sense. Go back to the Friday night, right? We know that Marilyn had uh, the prescription of 25 pills delivered on Friday Pat Newcomb spends the night. Marilyn wants her to be there, get a good night's sleep, sit out by the pool, get healthy. Uh, so it makes sense to me that possibly Newcomb had a sleeping pill Friday night yes. and had that uh, prescription bottle in the guest bedroom. And that's why Marilyn wasn't aware of where it was. But it also makes me question, you know, all of a sudden she is asking Greenson, you know, she has to have some sort of suspicions going on if she's going to be asking him if he's trying to remove her pills.
0: Yeah, this time frame and the quickness of it just seems very odd when we start looking at actively taking your life. I'm not saying that she couldn't have done a, had an overdose in regards to her life, but to actively take your life, it just seems very odd to be you know, happy one minute and going down the next. But, you know, as she starts to slide and or whether it's suicide, accidental overdose or something more, you know, we start to move into the fact that she's actually passed away the official verdict is, is that 3 o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden everybody is coming to the notion that something must have gone wrong. But there's also other accounts after 9 o'clock that start to happen. Gary, do you want to start this uh, process of what happens after 9 o'clock?
2: Yes. Joe and Dolores Nahr, who were guests of the Lawfords, they drove home rather early before 11 o'clock, and they had no recollection that there was a concern about Marilyn at the Lawford home. So if that conversation with Milton Evans and the phone calls to Milton Rudin took place, it might have been behind closed doors. Because when they drove home, they had already arrived home, and Lawford called them and asked them to go check on Marilyn. And then they claimed that Lawford called back and said, no need to go to the house because Milton Rudin called, and Mrs. Murray says everything is okay.
0: And what time was that?
2: It would have been before 11 o'clock because they said they were at the house sometime between, well, maybe 8 and 10 at Lawford's.
0: Okay. And Leslie, if we're now moving into, it's getting close to 11 o'clock, Arthur Jacobs and fiancé Natalie Trundy were also at the Hollywood Bowl, and Arthur Jacobs is informed that Marilyn Monroe is dead. Is that correct? Did that actually happen? That is
3: Natalie Trundy's version of events. She uh, says that a messenger uh, came to summon uh, Jacobs to the phone, Uh, And that Jacobs was told that either told that she was near death or that she was, in fact, dead. Um, And he asked someone else to drive her home. And she told Foto in an interview that she believed it was Milton Rudin who had called Arthur. But, you know, that's hearsay, of course, that's her, her guess. And she doesn't know anything beyond that. So she was taken home. And that's the last that we know of that particular story.
0: Okay, and supposedly at 11.30, Arthur Jacobs arrives. David, is that your recollection? Is that what you know to be true, or is that just a story?
1: I am not sure what time he would have showed up, but I do believe Natalie Trendy. Between 10, 10.30, seems like just enough time for Greensman and Murray and Ingeborg all to have discovered that Marilyn is dead, and then the phone calls from the house start going out to notify the people. And so the timing is right. The other thing I want to toss in is it seems that Lawford is purposely kept out of the loop. If he is calling Nair between 1030 and 11 o'clock, he would be unaware of her death. But Natalie Trundy and Jacobs already are aware of the death.
0: Very, very interesting. So then Milton Evans and Joe, who else is supposedly either at the house or on their way right now? Gary?
2: I don't have a lot of specific information as to the theories about the midnight trips. There is some speculation that the Schaefer Ambulance Company is called, but I've I've never seen any documentation of that. The driver had claimed that the body was in what would have been the guest room of the house and not in the master bedroom.
0: So, uh, Leslie, your remaining comments as we kind of move into this uh, 11 o'clock hour, anything you want to add?
3: I'm not sure, you know, in terms of who may have been at the house or not been at the house, but uh, there is no doubt in my mind that people were aware that she had passed at this point in time. So you now have a lot of hours between this time and when the uh, official story is that she wasn't discovered until 3.30 in the morning. And this, like you said, this is where a lot of the questions start to come in. And and there's been plenty of people fill in those hours with any kind of theory they can come up with.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for that. And that's a very good point. Mary Jane, give me your last comments. Uh, Knowing a lot of this timeline helps
3: us eliminate some of the people who are less than credible because uh, there's a lot of people out there who say, oh, I called her at 10 o'clock or, you know, I saw Bobby go into the house
0: at nine. And, you know, that's not true. So much for speculation. What is true and what isn't? We certainly have heard a lot of the theories being permeated into our cultural fabric without any proof over the last 60 years. And as you know, this series is dedicated to what is a fact, what is a probable theory, and what is an outlandish rumor. Well, I have Mr. Gary Vitaka Robles with me. He is my partner in a (laughs) non-crime. (laughs) <laughs> update this timeline because even when we originally did the recording of Goodnight Maryland radio, there are some updated facts to this timeline that we have to share with the audience. Hi, Gary.
2: Hi, Nina. Well, you know, over the past few years, I've been digging deep and researching some source documents to find out what was really going on that evening. And I've been able to piece together a timeline that differs somewhat from what we understood in 2015, 2016. There was a great article that came out in 1973. Maurice Zoloto, who is a Monroe biographer, actually spoke to Dr. Ralph Greenson and got his first person account of what went on that night. And he says that beginning at 4.30 in the afternoon, he had received a phone call from Marilyn and came to the house where he stayed for about two hours. And I'm going to quote what he says. She was quite upset. She was also somewhat disoriented. It was clear she had taken some sleeping pills during the day. She also had an irrational argument with her friend, Pat Dukum. Marilyn was talking in a confused way and it was hard to know what exactly was bothering her. So he then describes to Maurice Zoloto that Pat Newcomb had taken some sleeping pills and was able to get about 12 hours of sleep. Marilyn wasn't able to sleep very well that night. And he did not know at the time that Dr. Hyman Engelberg had given her a prescription for Nembutal, which was filled the day before.
0: So... Are you saying then that part of it, and I think people have to understand mental illness and mental health issues, and a lot of people want to make it out that Marilyn was either tortured or she was happy. And when you hear happy, you think that there has to be something more challenging in her life. But maybe just briefly explain why she could have been disoriented because people think there has to be some big reason for it and with acute mental illness it might be something very small actually
2: well dr engelberg went on record with me and in his own handwriting wrote to me that he and dr greenson believed that Marilyn suffered from what they called back then manic depressive disorder we now know that as bipolar illness, the bipolar disorder on the bipolar spectrum. And so for people not familiar with bipolar disorder, it's characterized by episodes of depression and episodes of mania or hypomania. And sometimes that looks like inability to sleep, risky behavior, even like an agitation. And so sometimes these mood fluctuations are not mutually exclusive meaning that someone can experience a mixed episode. And that's when they're experiencing a depressive episode at the same time that they're experiencing a manic or hypomanic episode. And it is during those mixed episodes that people with this disorder are more at risk to take their own lives. And that is, if you're in a major depressive episode and you're feeling suicidal, you might not have the energy to take action on what you're thinking about doing or feeling driven to do. But with the mania kicking in, there's poor judgment, there's irritability, there's impulsivity, and it's more likely under that circumstance that someone would then take action on the suicidal thoughts that they're having. This is why sometimes the loved ones of someone who's taken their own life, who's had bipolar disorder might say, well, you know, they were starting to do so well, they started to get their energy back. Well, what might have been happening was that they were now moving from a major depressive episode to a mixed episode, or maybe even a manic episode.
0: This is really important gary for people to really understand this because this was not the first time marilyn had attempted suicide Mm -hmm. or overdosed and i think that when you know this about somebody it makes more sense and she didn't eat that much that day and she didn't sleep at all and just think about it again 900 or 916 pills prescribed in the last three months and 700 Mm -hmm. of them were heavy heavy kind of sleep sedatives so no sleep these drugs going into her system she's not going to be making the best judgment regardless of what other facts are out there or probabilities
2: and the coroner even said that her physical appearance looks somewhat neglected and so, you know, we can place Marilyn in certain times and places in July, you know, we're talking now the evening of August 4th. And so the feedback from the coroner was that she needed a manicure and a pedicure that, you know, her hygiene wasn't the best. She hadn't bathed that day Even Eunice Murray, who goes on record not to describe her as depressed, but says that she had low energy, she hadn't uh, run a comb through her hair. So she was disheveled. So she wasn't taking good care of herself, at least I would say within the last few days of her life.
0: So just know this is all playing into the last day. So let's continue. So Dr. Greenson leaves, then we have the call. Well,
2: well, he's concerned about her. He thinks that she's depressed, but he has a dinner engagement and he had been working with her now for two hours. And he says, this is his quote. I listened to her jumble of confused talk. I said that instead of Pat Newcomb staying the night, Mrs. Murray should stay. I didn't want Marilyn to be alone. So he sent Pat Newcomb home and Eunice Murray remained and he left a phone number where he could be reached. He was at a dinner party with his wife and he made a recommendation. This is Nina. You've brought this one up before and you weren't quite sure the source of it. And this is the source of it. It's the Zoloto interview. She said that she might go to the beach and walk. And he said, don't do that. People will recognize you. Why don't you go for a drive up the coast highway with Mrs. Murray? And Marilyn wasn't driving at this time. She didn't have a car and she didn't appear to be in a condition to drive. So he told her to drink a large Coke before she went out. And we know Coke has caffeine. And that might counter effect, you know, the the sleeping medications that he believed she had been taken. But then he says that he received a phone call from her about seven o'clock. Now, this now is after he leaves and after Joe DiMaggio tells Marilyn that he broke off his engagement. And this was happy news for Marilyn because she did not think that that was a healthy move for him to marry this particular woman. And Dr. Greenson wrote in a letter to Maryland's New York psychiatrist, Dr. Marianne Chris. I was aware that she was somewhat annoyed with me. She often became annoyed when I did not absolutely and wholeheartedly agree with her, is my words. She was angry with me. I told her we would talk more and that she should call me Sunday morning. So there was tension in that relationship, and there might be some key in what that interaction was that maybe triggered Marilyn. So we're looking at why did her mood shift from Joe DiMaggio Jr. to her taking an overdose of medication? Well, I believe that Marilyn truly loved Joe DiMaggio Jr. This was her stepson, and she had supported him emotionally when his father could not. And at the time, she was financially helping him. And so I think she could fake it for a phone conversation uh, with him. But at the end of the conversation, Dr. Greenson says, she asked me whether I had taken away her Nembutal bottle. I was surprised that she asked me that because I did not know she was taking Nembitol. She had stopped taking all barbiturates for three weeks. I said to Marilyn, I had not taken her Nembitol and I didn't know she was taking Nembutal. And she quickly dropped the subject. I thought perhaps she was just confused. This is a key. He did not follow up on this. He knew that she was being prescribed chloral hydrate as an alternative to the more dangerous and addictive barbiturate Nembutal. She gives him the clue. She says to him, I have access to it. Did you take it? This goes back to what his daughter, Joan Greenson has told us. She goes on record in her memoir and says, Marilyn doctor shopped and the way that Dr. Engelberg and Greenson coordinated their care was that they wanted to avoid her going from doctor to doctor to doctor to get meds. And then they'd have no control over it. So Engelberg prescribed and he would give Marilyn whatever she wanted. And then he would call Dr. Greenson whose role was to go to her house and remove some of the medication or spill out some of the medication and kind of reduce the, the lethal access. And so she's telling this doctor, did you take my NumBetol? And he doesn't question that and he rushes off.
0: And let me just say this. And this is one thing that I don't care if you think that she was murdered by five people. The level of distraction with these two doctors and the two of them not in communication with each other was negligent. Don't you agree, Gary?
2: Absolutely. You know, when you look at what's suspicious in this case, the suspicion for many people is that the body was discovered at 3.30 and the police were not called until almost an hour later. And both doctors now came to the house and she was pronounced dead. So that was, I think, the wake-up call for both of them. They could not believe what had happened under their watch. And I think that's when Greenson... If he really did not know that Engelberg was prescribing this medication in that moment, he knew. And Dr. Engelberg had been going through a divorce and he had moved out and was very stressed out over that. There was no communication between the two of them over these medications. And I'm sure that was a devastating moment for them to feel the gravity of how they handled this case and how it contributed to this woman's death. I would think that there was a lot of conversation going on. Another thing I want to say, though, Nina, is that Milton Rudin was Maryland's attorney, but he was also Dr. Greenson's brother-in-law, and he was pulled into this case that night. I have no doubt that Milton Rudin had a conversation with his brother-in-law about possible culpability in this death and maybe even counsel, Dr. Engelberg at that moment. And Dr. Engelberg for years afterwards said, I never prescribed the hydrate." He said that to me, he said that to the district attorney's office in 1982. You can hear it on, on YouTube, but then we find all of these prescriptions for hydrate. So he was already trying to mitigate his culpability in these very reckless prescribing practices.
0: Now you have some updates around Peter Lawford around nine o'clock.
2: Yeah. Now Peter Lawford, you know, in this case, you really do have to research the differing accounts by individuals over the course of time. The stories do somewhat change. And if you ask me at various points in my life about significant events in my life, my my story would likely change too. you know, memory plays tricks on us. And so remembering everything in a chronology timeline is isn't the way we record our memories. But if you look at the newspapers in 1962 in August, at first, Lawford says that Marilyn had called him. He doesn't say at what point, but she had called him for his wife's phone number in Hyannis because she was away. He had telephoned her to invite her to his dinner party that he was having with friends in his wife's absence, and he, he told the press that he thought she was lonely, and then um, he called her back to uh, attend the party, and she said she might come, but she was tired and planned to go to bed, and he said that she sounded sleepy. So that was his original version of events. And then in 1971, the columnist Earl Wilson published a book called The Show Business Nobody Knows. And this is where we're first told of the say goodbye to the president quote. That Marilyn says to Peter Lawford. And this has been construed that Monroe was reaching out to Lawford in crisis to say goodbye, to let him know that she was depressed and maybe wanting to end her life. But this isn't what Lawford says. Um, Monroe did not call him. He phoned her. And that's when she said, say goodbye to Pat, who is his wife say goodbye to the president and say goodbye to yourself because you're a nice guy. And he reports that her voice sounded slurred and he recognized that she was either drunk or very uh, near sleep from um, taking sleeping pills. You know, this this goes to another point about would Monroe ever reach out to Lawford in crisis? And according to Rupert Allen, her press agent, she did not entirely trust him. It was really Pat Lawford, that she was friends with. She would never have turned to Peter in a crisis. And from what we'll talk about and learn is that he wasn't able to navigate through this crisis and help her. Then in 1975, We Magazine published an article by Anthony Scaduto. And it was one of the early articles about you know who killed Marilyn. You know, the Los Angeles Police Department who have come under a lot of criticism about how they handled this case and that they covered it up. Well, let me tell you, in my research, it seems like whenever something in the media exploded with a new revelation, LAPD was on it. And they went back out and they interviewed people. They went out several times to talk to the coroner, Thomas Nagushi because he would say some provocative things in uh, radio shows or television shows. And they'd come out and reinvestigate and say, hey, you know, last time you told us this, it seems like you've recounted another version of the story. And interestingly, especially in the coroner's case, he kind of pedaled backwards and took back some of the provocative things that he said in the media. And so Lawford was interviewed again in 75 and then again in 82 by the district attorney during their threshold uh, reinvestigation of the case. He said that Marilyn's voice kind of trailed off and she became kind of silent and he called her back to see if there was a trouble with the line and the line now was ringing busy. So he actually called an operator who was able to tap into the line and report to him that these were old fashioned phones, the receiver on the cradle, that the line was disconnected. And and she said that, no, it wasn't. The line was still open, but that there was no conversation on the line. And that's when he became concerned, because now you have uh, a woman who is maybe clinging on to life and the phone hasn't disconnected. So now he can't get through for help. And so um, other people were with Peter Lawford during this dinner party, and he tried to get them engaged in helping Marilyn. There's, there's a lot of people there. You know, there's Milton Evans and his wife, Lynn Sherman. There's a gentleman called George Durgam, who goes by the name of Bullets Durgam. There's Joseph Narr and his wife, Dolores. So he's not alone at home. He's having a dinner party. So when Lawford is concerned and wants to do something, his manager, Milton Evans, who has a fiduciary responsibility to him, intervenes and says, you cannot do this. You're too intoxicated. You can't go over there and consider your role as the brother-in-law of the president of the United States. So Milton Evans decides that the best thing to do is for them to reach out to Dr. Greenson and or Dr. Greenson's brother-in-law Milton Rudin, who was Monroe's attorney, and let's let the attorney and the psychiatrist, who are related to each other, take it from here and get involved. So in trying to put this all together, I wanted to hear Milton Eben's version and so Milton Evans was interviewed by Anthony Summers when he uh, released Goddess in 1985. And his account was documented in that book. But also, Evans spoke to the press during this period. And there were several articles uh, you know, that were syndicated in newspapers across the United States. And he talked about he would be writing his own book at the time, which reportedly he never did. So this is Evans' version. So, Evans says that when Lawford called Marilyn again, she said she couldn't come and that she was, quote unquote, anxiety ridden. And he said that he talked to Marilyn one more time and that her voice was fuzzy. And Milton Evans also confirms that Marilyn made the say goodbye to the president comment at that time. This is a quote from Evans. I suggested we call Milton Rudin, Marilyn's attorney and her psychiatrist Dr. Ralph Greenson, Mickey's brother-in-law, and ask them to go to her house. I got Mickey and told him about Peter's apprehension. So this completely corroborates with what Eunice Murray told the police. So she recalls Milton or Mickey Rudin calling Monroe's house while she was watching the Perry Mason show. So that ran from 730 to 830. So she's receiving this phone call around 830, which is the same time Milton Rudin says that he reached out. So Evans puts Rudin in charge of reaching out to Eunice Murray in Marilyn's home to find out if she's okay. There was no communication of Urgency. It was just kind of like, How is she? And Eunice Murray says, Well, you know, she went to bed. She seems fine. Do you want do you want me to interrupt her and put her on the line? And and since there's no concern in the household, Rudin is satisfied with that and goes back and calls Evans, who then calls Lawford and some of these other people who were guests.
0: Let me ask you a question. Did you ever in your research, Gary, did Milt Evans ever talk about his own guilt? Because He was the one that talked to Lawford. Lawford seemed very distraught. So something that happened with Evans and Rudin changed that scenario because somewhere along the line, he didn't get that message. And I'm wondering why in the world wasn't that
2: conveyed? That's really the great mystery. The The real mystery of this is why did no one try to help Marilyn? And I mean, they didn't call the authorities. I mean, that's one way they could have gotten help to Marilyn without implicating themselves. They could have reported what they heard and had The authorities come to her home,
0: but you know what is that? Probably why they didn't do it. Is any high-profile celebrity exactly going to call the the attorneys? They're going to call the agents. They're going to call the managers and say, "How do you want to handle this?" So I somewhat understand that, given who she was. Absolutely, yes. But you know that game of telephone certainly did not get the message through. We're going to have to close here. I know everybody's going to go. Oh my gosh, you just got to the eight o'clock time frame but you see how even over the last five or six years that we've been doing this investigation, you're starting to see how this story starts to fit. It's complex. It's challenging. But here's the thing. We are breaking it down for you. What is a fact? What is a probable theory? And what is an outlandish rumor? I'd like to thank my Good Night, Maryland panel, as well as my expert my my partner here i couldn't do this without you he is the author of <laughs> icon lifetimes and films of marilyn monroe you have a book coming out all around marilyn's death tell us about that
2: this is volume 3 of the icon trilogy and so this one has a provocative title it's icon who killed marilyn monroe
0: well you're finding out parts of it right here there you have it we will be discussing the next murky area of Marilyn Monroe's life in next week's episode. Gary will be back with me and we'll continue our discussion, breaking down fact from probable theory to outlandish rumor. I'm Nina Bosky for the Behind the Icon Investigation series, The Truth Will Be Known.